the logic of the ruling seems to suggest that she would be protected. So um, this is a ruling that could have sweeping impacts, probably far beyond what many have expected, maybe even what the court expected. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, as SCOTUS wrapped up in lead up to its annual summer recess, these it issued three controversial rulings, all with a 6-3 vote, and created quite a stir. First, SCOTUS ruled in Biden versus Nebraska that the Biden administration is not allowed to forgive federal student loans based upon the HERO statute, ruling that the federal government overreached with its student loan forgiveness program. Second, in Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College, SCOTUS rejected affirmative action in university admissions, ruling that race-conscious decisions are unconstitutional. And if you're thinking about this one, take a moment and revisit last year's episode with the Dean of Admissions from Harvard and the Dean of Admissions from Yale in our series, The Life of a Lawyer. Well, third, one of the Supreme Court decisions that came out today or in this last term was the 303 Creative versus Alanis. SCOTUS ruled with a Colorado-based Christian website designer, Lori Smith, who declared that the First Amendment entitles her to refuse same-sex wedding work. So what sort of impact will these rulings have on society? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll spotlight the recent SCOTUS rulings regarding loan relief, affirmative action, and the website designer First Amendment ruling. We'll discuss SCOTUS and long-term impact of these decisions. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined today by Professor Stephen D. Schwinn from the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law. Steve is a frequent commenter on issues related to constitutional law and human rights. He is co-founder and co-editor of the Constitutional Law Prof blog and an occasional contributor to other blogs and publications. Professor Schwinn is the editor of the American Constitution Society Supreme Court Review, an annual publication reviewing cases and issues at the Supreme Court. He regularly writes for the ABA preview of the United States Supreme Court cases. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. Well, Steve, I see that you practice full-time in the office of the General Counsel of the Peace Corp. Give us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in constitutional law and SCOTUS. Yeah, Craig, so I did start my career in the General Counsel's office at Peace Corps in Washington and moved slowly into teaching and found that I just had a love for constitutional law moved in the direction of constitutional law, comparative constitutional law, and human rights, and that's basically what I do today. Well, today we're going to be talking about some significant constitutional law cases that have come out of the Supreme Court in this last term. Let's start with the one on loan relief, which is in sharp focus because as we record this podcast, President Biden has just forgiven some billions of dollars of student loans again. Indeed. Yeah, this is a fast-moving story. After the case came down, the Biden administration said that they would look to different authority to effect effectively the same result that they were seeking to effect in the loan forgiveness program in round one that the Supreme Court struck. And so now we're seeing the Biden administration take different kinds of action to look for other available ways to grant loan forgiveness. 
Let's talk a little bit about what came out of this opinion. What is this business about major questions? So, Craig, this is a doctrine that the Supreme Court has kind of, some would say, invented, others would say sort of evolved and came to a head last summer when the Supreme Court ruled on a Clean Air Act case, West Virginia versus EPA. And what the court said basically is that if Congress is going to delegate authority to an administrative agency over a significant political or economic question, that Congress has to do so with clarity and specificity. And what that means is that Congress can't delegate to, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency general authority to you know, for example, make the air clean, it's got to delegate with more particular authority than that if the EPA is going to use that authority to implement rules and regulations that amount to a significant or political economic issue. In this case, the Biden case, the uh, student loan case, what happened is the Biden administration relied on authority in what's called the HEROES Act. Now, the HEROES Act is an act that Congress passed in the wake of 9-11 that gives certain emergency authority to the president and the administration to take certain actions in response to an emergency or national disaster or something like 9-11. One of the authorities in the HEROES Act was for the president to waive or modify, and here I'm using the language of the act, waive or modify student loans, federal student loans, if there's a kind of emergency or natural disaster. The Trump administration and the Biden administration had both used this authority to grant temporary relief for federal student loan borrowers because of COVID. The Biden administration went one step further and granted categorical forgiveness up to $10,000 for certain borrowers and $20,000 for other borrowers under this authority to waive or modify federal student loans under the HEROES Act. Now, the argument against that was that this violates the major's questions doctrine, that waive or modify is not specific uh, authority for the Biden administration to take this kind of aggressive action that has a significant political or economic impact. And basically, the Supreme Court accepted that argument and struck the Biden administration's attempt to grant this kind of forgiveness. Well, where do we find major questions? In the Constitution? That's a really good question. I've been searching up and down for it since the Supreme Court has started to talk about it. It's actually not in the Constitution. What the Supreme Court has said is that this is a uh, function of our separation of powers system. The idea here is that Congress is the institution among the three branches of government. Congress is the one that makes law. The executive branch implements law or executes law. If the administrative agencies, part of the executive branch, if they start wielding too much authority that has too much political or economic significance, then they are effectively making law in violation of the separation of powers. And what I mean by that is that the administration, administrative agency is effectively doing Congress's job for it by making law. It's kind of a weird way to think about separation of powers because 
what really the idea here is that the court through the major questions doctrine is protecting Congress's prerogative to make the law, but Congress did make the law. It just granted the administrative agencies a lot of authority to take major action in a disaster situation. And so, the, in my view, the major questions doctrine is, is not only impossible to find in the text of the Constitution, but very, very hard to find even in its structure. But that's where the court is, and that's what the court ruled in the case. How does the court justify the tension that Congress's power has with the aspect of the Constitution that dictates that the branches are co-equal? Why can't the executive branch wield the same level of power that Congress is wielding. It seems like the Supreme Court's willing to do it. What? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, Craig. I've been thinking a lot about this since the decision came down. One of the funny things about our separation of powers is that the Supreme Court gets to make rules on the separation of powers and, and decide cases on the separation of powers. But when it does so, it seems almost intentionally unconscious of the fact that it is part of our separation of powers. And so some argue that by inventing this major questions doctrine and applying it to to a case like the student loan case or environmental cases last term and this term, that what the court really is doing is taking that power for itself and that that itself is a violation of the separation of powers. Because between the three branches, if any branch shouldn't be in the business of making law, it's the judiciary. And yet that's what the major questions doctrine allows the courts to do. Can Congress fix that? Congress could, in theory, fix it. What Congress could do is uh, legislate with more specificity in areas where there are significant political or economic impacts. The problem with that is that, as a practical matter, Congress isn't going to be able to get the votes together to do that. And moreover, Congress doesn't really have the institutional expertise to do that. If you think about something like, well, you can think about the student loan program, right? When Congress enacted the HEROES Act, it had no idea that we'd be facing a pandemic that might justify student loan relief. And that's by design. So what Congress did in the HEROES Act was to delegate very broad authority for the administration to act in areas of uh, natural disasters or national emergencies, not really knowing what those emergencies might be in the future. We can't expect Congress to legislate with specificity every time we have a national emergency. In the environmental context, we can't expect Congress to legislate every time with the kind of specificity that the Environmental Protection Agency regulates in areas of clean air or clean water. Congress just doesn't have the institutional expertise to do that. And it's a, it's a very slow-moving branch. It, it, it's just not institutionally well-suited to do that. And that's why we have agencies, right? Well, in my view, that's exactly why we have agencies. That's right. But agencies more and more these days, Craig, are coming under fire as themselves a violation of the separation of powers. And we're seeing that manifest in doctrines like the major questions doctrine, but other challenges to administrative agencies' authorities as well. You know, we have to take a look back at history and we've seen pre-FDR Republicans and now Republicans kind of acting in the same way in the sense of trying to dismantle government. Is this process going to really dismantle the government? 
I'm not sure that it will ultimately dismantle the government, but I think it will require us fundamentally to rethink administrative agencies' place in our separation of powers system. We're seeing these attacks on administrative agencies in a number of different ways. The major questions doctrine is one way. There are other attacks on the authority of the president, for example, to appoint certain officials to agencies in certain ways pursuant to statute under the president's appointment power and removal power. And we're seeing attacks on administrative agencies' power to interpret uh, the law and interpret their own regulations. And between those different kind of attacks on the administrative state, that this court seems perfectly willing to accept. I, I do think that in coming years and decades, we're going to see a sharp curtailment on administrative agencies' authorities. Unless we see some significant changes in the voting. I, well, I think that's true. It's a good point, but I got to tell you, you know, we had a window here where Democrats who tend to favor agency power in today's politics, uh, the Democrats had had power in both the House and Senate and the White House, and they were either unable or unwilling to roll back some of these moves to curtail agencies' powers. And so I'm not tremendously hopeful. I think the Supreme Court these days has a lot of power over administrative agencies. All right, Steve, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Professor Stephen Schwinn from the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law. We've been discussing one of the cases in the last Supreme Court term. But Steve, let's turn to the affirmative action ruling with Harvard. Seems like there's some more dismantling going on. There is, yeah. Yes, I think that's exactly right. The affirmative action decision struck the affirmative action programs, the race-based affirmative action programs at Harvard and University of North Carolina under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and the Equal Protection Clause, respectively. What the courts here doing, Craig, is moving toward a kind of colorblind constitution. Uh, what it's saying is that the Equal Protection Clause and, in turn, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act 
require the government to be colorblind in the way that it behaves. And and that's going to mean a lot of different things in a lot of different areas. But one thing that it means for race-based affirmative action is that the government can't use race as a factor in admissions to increase the ideological diversity of the student body on campus. Or at least its power to do so is going to be severely restricted in the future. How is that going to spill over into businesses? I mean, we'll get to the 303 creative case in a second, but how is this affirmative ruling going to spill over? It could, in my view, it could spill over in two ways. I think the more likely spillover or the maybe the more immediate spillover is kind of an indirect spillover. What I mean by that is we've seen with schools in states that have prohibited race-based affirmative action, we've seen the racial minority population drop precipitously. What that means then is that fewer and fewer college graduates from those states are going to be students of color, and that's going to spill over into the workforce. We'll see fewer and fewer people of color getting hired for jobs that require college educations. And I suspect that that sort of indirect way of affecting the the market and the workforce we'll see in coming years and decades. The other way that it could affect is a more direct way, and that is the court's ruling on Title VI and the Equal Protection Clause demanding a kind of colorblind constitution and a colorblind approach to Title VI and the Civil Rights Act could have some spillover to other civil rights laws where the Supreme Court has been how to describe this, a little more accommodating of the government using race, for example, to remedy its own prior discrimination in hiring or contracting. And I suspect that this decision is, uh, is going to be a kind of step in the direction of a colorblind constitution in those other areas as well. Is the Equal Protection Clause that we're talking about here limited to race, or does it extend into other categories like wealth? Yeah, well, here's the funny thing. It, uh, it just talks about equal protection. Now, it was enacted in the wake of the Civil War. It's one of the Reconstruction Amendments, and so that everybody understands that its principal purpose was to eradicate slavery and the the badges and incidents of slavery and to uh, eradicate what we had called the Black Codes, which were a system of state laws that kept freed Black people in a system of de facto slavery. But the Supreme Court has interpreted the Equal Protection Clause to provide protection, for example, to women and prohibit sex-based discrimination. And by its plain terms, it expands to equal protection to treat everybody the same. In the race area, we went through a period in our history where the court seemed to acknowledge that the way to address race-based problems in society, like systemic racism, for example, is for the government to use race-based means, which kind of makes sense, right? If you want to overcome a system of racism, doing it through race kind of makes sense. And the court seemed to sanction that for a good period of our history. But more recently, in the last decade, 
or two, the Supreme Court has been moving toward this colorblind view of the Constitution that says government can't use race for any purpose. The government has to treat everybody the same, irrespective of race. And if that leads to racially disparate outcomes in, for example, higher education or government hiring or government contracting, well, those are problems that the court says the Equal Protection Clause is not designed to to address that that what the equal protection clause does is to provide a kind of colorblind or race neutral approach to race based problems. Chief Justice Roberts summarized this approach in a case called Parents Involved. This was dealing with school desegregation many years ago when he wrote the way to stop discrimination by race is to stop discriminating by race. And what he meant by that is that if we can simply stop using race in government decision-making, that racism will go away. A hotly controversial claim, but that's the direction that the court is moving. And what's their thought process behind that? I mean, is that something that really is going to work? And has the affirmative action system that we've been using so far in education worked to the benefit of balancing things? I'll I'll address the latter question first. In terms of affirmative action, uh, race-based affirmative action programs do seem to increase racial diversity on campus and allow people of color to attend college in numbers that they might not otherwise get to attend if there were no race-based affirmative action. And I say that based on the experiences of these states that have prohibited race-based affirmative action where we really have seen a sharp decline in racial minority enrollment in the colleges and universities. And I I expect that we'll see that nationwide in the wake of this ruling. Now, whether that's the most effective way to achieve the government's objective, well, I I can't really say. There There may be better ways for the government to address systemic or institutionalized racism and to allow opportunities for racial minorities in society than a particular race-based affirmative action program. But the idea of using race to address a systemic racial problem strikes me as quite sensible. And indeed, there's good historical evidence, and Justice Jackson talks a lot about this in her dissent in the case, good historical evidence that that's exactly what the framers of the 14th Amendment were trying to do, empower the government to use race to address a racial problem. Right. Well, Steve, it's time for another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance and they're endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. 
Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. And welcome back to Lawyer Lawyer. I'm back with Stephen Schwinn, professor at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law. We've been talking about the Harvard decision recently out of the Supreme Court. Steve, what's going to happen? Are we going to see another Alan Bakke style case out of this? Or is any lawsuit based on race to get into school just no longer uh, dead at the door? It's it's a great question, and it's a little uncertain at this point. I my, let's if we game this out. I think what's probably going to happen after this decision is that schools will look to other ways to increase racial diversity on campus. So programs to increase outreach, for example, scholarship programs and the like, and using other admission criteria that they see as a proxy for for racial minorities. And so here we might be looking at geography, for example. In a city where I live, like Chicago, zip codes are a really good proxy for race, for example, socioeconomic status, overcoming hardships in the past, and things like that that aren't on their face race-based, but nevertheless good proxies for race in our society. And I suspect that when states start doing that in an effort to retain the racial diversity that they've achieved under race-based affirmative action, I do expect that we probably will see another round of lawsuits challenging those efforts as attempts to increase racial diversity, but do it in a race-neutral way. Now, what the Supreme Court will say about those things is anybody's guess at this point, although I, I, you know, my own money is on the court looking very, very carefully at programs like that and really trying to assess whether state states and schools are using a kind of racial motivation or racial intent, even if they're not saying so, and then striking those programs. I guess what I'm saying here is I'm not holding out a lot of hope for the Supreme Court upholding uh, state and uh, state attempts and private schools attempts to achieve racial diversity in other ways. Right. Well, now it's time to switch the topics and kind of transition from equal equal protection into the First Amendment and maybe even talk about the interplay of the two of those with the 303 creative case. Indeed. This was a striking case. This involved a website designer who wanted to move into the business of designing wedding websites for, for weddings. And uh, she wanted to do this in a way that would serve opposite-sex couples, but not serve same-sex couples and other couples that she said violates her religious beliefs. Now, when I describe it that way, it sounds like the case is about religion. But it turns out it's not about religion. It was just about free speech. The claim that she made was that the Colorado anti-discrimination law that prohibits discrimination by sexual orientation effectively compelled her to create wedding websites for same-sex couples. And again, she had an objection to that based on her religion. And she said that by creating these websites, that's a form of speech. It has a communicative value. It's an expressive activity, and it's unique to her. 
and uh, and that by forcing her to create websites for same-sex couples, the government is effectively forcing her to speak against her beliefs, and that that violates the First Amendment free speech clause. And the Supreme Court agreed. The Supreme Court said for these activities that have a kind of expressive value, even if somebody is in the marketplace conducting a business, and even if they're otherwise subject to a state's anti-discrimination laws, the government can't compel them to speak in violation of their beliefs. Now, I said that this sounded like a religion case, but it's not. This is one of the big questions that comes out of the case is we just don't know how far it will extend. So, for example, if a, if the same website designer had an objection to creating wedding websites for couples of different races based on a belief that people of different races shouldn't get married, is she protected? Well, the, the logic of the ruling seems to suggest that she would be protected. So um, this is a ruling that could have sweeping impacts, probably far beyond what many have expected, maybe even what the court expected. Aren't there some pretty bizarre examples that are out there? I mean, if you're a member of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, can you decide that you <laughs> don't want to serve Christians? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, we're seeing this come up now in, uh, you know, as you can imagine, there will be a spate of lawsuits after 303 Creative came down. And so we're seeing, for example, a hairstylist from Michigan saying that she doesn't want to serve gays and lesbians because she has a religious objection to them and that her Hairstyling is an expressive activity. We're seeing a claim from a clerk in the Texas courts saying that she doesn't want to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples because issuing a marriage license is an expressive activity and, hmm. and those licenses. And we already gone through that one. Well, it, it sure seems like, right? I mean, we actually came pretty close in a case a couple of terms ago, uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which then led to the clerk and Obergefell, of course, leading to a clerk who's saying they had a religious objection to this. But the claim that coming out of 303 is a little bit different. This is a free speech claim, not a religion claim. And what the claimants are saying is that they're engaged in some kind of expressive activity that's protected by the free speech clause. And again, that's how the court ruled, and that doesn't seem to be restricted to or cabined to religious objections only. It seems to apply to any objection that a person might have. Well, Steve, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program today, so it's, I'd like to take this opportunity to let you share your final thoughts and provide your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they have some questions. Sure, you bet, Craig. Thank you. So in terms of final thoughts, we saw a term where we had a number of cases that went heavily conservative. We talked about those. We saw some other cases this term that did not go as conservative as many expected. My takeaway from the term is that this is a Supreme Court despite the fact that some of its cases didn't go as conservative as many expected, this is a Supreme Court that is leaning heavily conservative and is not shying away from taking on very big, hotly contested questions 
overturning long-standing doctrine and long-standing understandings of our Constitution and of our society, this court is uh, not hesitating one bit in doing that. It's using the 6-3 majority to move decidedly in a conservative direction. Um, some people will uh, will praise that, some people will lament it, but I think the, the trend here is irrefutable. For listeners who wanted to contact me, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. You can get me at schwinn at uic.edu. That's S-C-H-W-I-N-N at UIC, as in University of Illinois, Chicago, edu. Well, Steve, as we wrap up, thanks very much for being on our show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a ton, Craig. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, here are a few of my thoughts about today's topic. You'll notice that I use the question, dismantle the government, in several instances, and that's essentially a large part of what's going on here. Rights that were granted in the 60s under the civil rights movement are slowly being eroded away. And unless voters step up and elect an administration and Congress people that are going to change this heading, we can expect, as Professor Schwinn noted, for this to last a long, long time and for it to get much worse than it is now. Well, that's it for today's rant on this topic. Let me know what you think. If you like what you heard on the podcast today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at thelegaltalknetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.